Leviticus 18, we'll read verses 1 through 6. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelt, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall ye walk in their ordinances. Ye shall keep, ye shall do my judgments and keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which, if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach to any that is of near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the Lord, that your statutes concerning all things are right. Give us wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and obedience. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We've been studying the law of marriage in the laws of Scripture. We looked first at Romans 7, verses 1 through 4, the law of the husband over his wife. And then we've looked in the law of Moses, after having looked at the patriarchs. Now we're looking in the book of Moses. We saw in Exodus from 21, the laws concerning husbands and wives there, and especially the law against adultery in Exodus chapter 20. Now today we're looking at various laws concerning marriage in Leviticus 18. Now we will read a few of these passages and then make some comments. First then, chapter 18, 1 through 5, which we just read, lays a general foundation for sexual purity and chastity. Notice there verse 2, I am the Lord your God. God is giving a, a background Why is it that you should not act like the heathen? Well, here's the reason. I am Jehovah, thine God, thine Elohim, thy mighty one, thy lawgiver, thy judge. God is a universal God. There is only one God, and he is our God. And these laws are moral. These laws apply to all men. Note then verse 3. After the doings of the land of Egypt and of Canaan, he tells them, don't do what they do. There are a class of scholars who believe that the Old Testament is the product of the historic process. Moses, in his little mind, lived in a world that was like this. And so when the Old Testament came to us, it's the product of Moses' thoughts of the culture that surrounds him and of God's inspiring him to write certain things. This class of scholars is mistaken, gravely mistaken. In fact, here you see very clearly, this is countercultural. You came out of Egypt and they lived this way. You're going into Canaan and they live this way, but I don't want you living like any of them. The Bible, therefore, is not the product of the cultures surrounding the Hebrew people. No, it is the law of Almighty God. 
It is the oracles, the mouthpiece, God speaking to us and telling us what is right and what is wrong. He says in verse 3 that you shall not do after or walk in their ordinances. Now, these are cultural patterns of behavior tolerated by their civil magistrates, condemned by their consciences, but permitted to be done. And we're going to read some very foul deeds that the Egyptians and the Canaanites did. And if you wonder, was it right for God to say to wipe out all the Canaanites? I'm here to tell you, yes, it was. Listen to the things that they did and ask yourself, do such a people deserve to live? The answer is no. That's why God's telling them, don't become like them or you will partake in their fate. I will judge you as I'm judging them. Don't walk in their ordinances, he says. But rather, what's the contrast? Verse 4, ye shall do my judgments, God says, and keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. Egypt is not your God. Canaan is not your God. Baal is not your God. You are not your God. Your family is not your God. I am your God, he says. I'm your mighty one. I give you laws. There's only one lawgiver, James says, who is able to save and to destroy. Who is that? The Lord, our God. That's why he reminds again and again, do what I say because I'm your God. Don't listen to them because I'm destroying them. Then he says, verse 5, if a man do, that is God's commandments, his statutes and his judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. Now this statement is true in man's natural state in Adam when God created him. God said, do this and live. Don't do this and die. Man had the power to keep that commandment, to do and live. We call this the covenant of works made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Subsequent to his creation, God entered into a covenant with him and threatened him with destruction if he didn't keep that covenant. Man could do what God said and have life through doing what God said. Do you know there was someone else who could do that? Who could keep all of God's commandments and always do what was pleasing to God and therefore be justified? That is Jesus. And that through his obedience, we have the righteousness of God reckoned to us. Yes, he's the second Adam. First Adam failed in that covenant. Second Adam kept that covenant. But in a lesser application, what is said here is also true of nations. Would you like your nation to die? Well, disregard what I say, as we'll see later in the chapter. But if you would like your nation to live, you must do what I say. And you will be prospered and you will be blessed. Not because you deserve it, because you're sinners, but because God is merciful. And he says, I will bless the nation whose God is the Lord. But sin is a reproach to any people. So here, now, verse 6. Here's the general preface to this section. None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am the Lord. This passage from 6 to 17, verses 6 through 17 this illustrates what is called consanguinity and what is called affinity. Now, sanguis 
is the word for blood. So consanguis means I share blood with someone. I'm a blood relation to them. God says there are degrees of consanguinity that you cannot marry. You can't even look upon nor engage in any action that would be of this nature. He forbids it entirely. That's consanguinity. And we'll see the degrees that he forbids. Then note, he also forbids degrees of affinity. Now, affiance is where you join together in faithful covenant with another person called marriage. Solomon made affiance with Egypt because he married Pharaoh's daughter. He had affiance with them. So affinity means when you join in marriage. Now, God illustrates in this passage one very important truth. You have the consanguinity, the blood relations, and you have the affinity relations, and these two are the same. Once you marry, everyone forbidden by blood is also forbidden by affiance. Let me illustrate. He says, if you marry a woman, you cannot marry her sister. So if your wife dies, you can't marry her sister later. Because by that marital affiance, the sister of your wife is now your sister, and you may not uncover the nakedness of your sister. Therefore, you may not uncover her nakedness to your sister-in-law. That's the relation, no blood to your sister-in-law. You have no consanguinity, no blood, but you do have affinity. And therefore, God says, just like your own sister, so your sister-in-law. So they're parallels, consanguinity and affinity. They are both forbidden. That said, let's look at verse 6. Any that is near of kin to him. Now, this word kin in Hebrew means his flesh of his flesh is literally what it says. Two different words for flesh. The flesh of your flesh. Those that you're related to physically, in other words, you may not do this. Don't approach to them to uncover their nakedness, he says. And that is the second part here. Uncovering or revealing something that is hidden or that should remain so. And this word nakedness means what is indecent, what is improper, or what is shameful. Now remember, in Genesis, when Adam and his wife were there in the garden naked, they were not ashamed. But subsequent to the fall, it introduced shame. They tried to cover their nakedness. You remember with fig leaves, they tried to sew them aprons. Didn't work. God made a covering of animal skins and covered them with it. There was death of an animal, the spilling of blood, and then their shame was covered. And in the marital relation, there is no shame. But outside of the marital relation, this is shameful. And that's why the Hebrew word means not just naked, but improper, indecent, or shameful. I note then this doctrine that exposure of certain parts reserved for lawful marriage is shameful. It is perverse. It is contrary to natural decency and the seventh commandment and of wholesome civil society. So God has rules about don't uncover your body because it's indecent, it's obscene. People shouldn't see it unless they're married to you. One man, one woman, they can see those things. Don't show it to other people. And our society is getting closer and closer to the line, pushing further and further toward their wicked, lawless, shameful ways. God says don't do it. Let us abandon the worldly notion of exposing ourselves to others in our bodies. Keep that for marriage. Be cautious, be mindful, and do not be ensnared by the things you can see with your eyes. 
God is saying these things are reserved for a special relation and that's it. And so we must be cautious, both male and female, in these matters. Notice then verse 7. He says, The nakedness of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother shalt thou not uncover. She is thy mother. So here he's saying, your mom, your mother, she's actually the one who bore you. Now, saying she is thy mother is explanatory of the first. What is the nakedness of my father? Well, because the two become one flesh, remember in Genesis 2, therefore to uncover her is to uncover his nakedness. That's what he's saying. That's why it's the nakedness of thy father. It's actually the mother, but the two are united in one. This is the closest tie of consanguinity, where you're begotten and born of these parents. And God says, this is abominable. Now again, this is what the Egyptians did. This is what the Canaanites did. Do you see why God hated them? Do you see why he destroyed them? Okay, let us abandon these heathen ideas. I note this doctrine, heathen lawlessness eventually leads to such vile conduct. You might think to yourself, well, that would never happen in America, would it? Yes, because once you abandon God, once you abandon his law, once you say, I can do what I please, even with his holy day, where's the boundary mark? Where is the point where you say, well, I'll stop here. Oh, I'm a good person. I'll stop here. Are you a good person? Does God assess you and say, or me and say, you're a good person. You'll know what's best. Follow your heart. That's what Disney says. Follow your heart. Does God agree with Disney? No, because he's not Satan. He's God. Disney is inspired by Satan. Why do you think they encourage magic and lawlessness and following your heart and everybody's a princess? Oh, you're special. The world's all about you. Why do they tell you that? Because they want you in hell where the devil and his angels will be punished. God doesn't say follow your heart. And if you follow your heart, your heart is crooked and deceitful above all things, God says. Jeremiah 17, 9. And who can know it? The heart of man brings forth every evil deed, Jesus says. What is it that comes out of the mouth but what's in your heart? And then Jesus says, what's in the heart of man? Wickedness, depravity, lying, adulteries, murders. Those are the things that come out of the heart of man. And so you cannot be naive. Oh, that'll never happen here. Yes, it will. You must understand human depravity. If it is not punished... If it is not discouraged, if other perverse actions are not punished and discouraged, they will eventually get to this. And they have started. And they are pushing for it. Let us abandon then this naive humanism that believes that man's, you know, he's pretty good. He may not be perfect, but, you know, he's all right. He wouldn't do that. Yes, he would. Yes, you would. Yes, I would. If God does not restrain us, if God does not work in us, if we don't humble ourselves before him but exalt ourselves, of course we will do these things, just like the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Verse 8, the Lord says, Thy father's wife, she's not your mother. She didn't bear you. Yet... She is legally united as one flesh with your father who begat you, right? That's the idea here. This is a relationship of affinity. Remember what I said. Consanguinity, blood, 
she's your mother, forbidden. Mother, stepmother here. She's not your blood, but she is united with your dad who is. So you have now an affinity relationship. Affiance by marriage makes her off the consideration, off the menu, so to speak. No, Webster says of this word affinity, the relation contracted by marriage between a husband and his wife's kindred and between the wife and her husband's kindred in contradistinction from consanguinity, which is the blood relation. It's different from that, but it has to do with marriage. You cannot take your father's wife. Do you remember what Paul said the man should be disciplined for? Affinity. Violating the rule of affinity, a man had his father's wife, he says, not his mother, his father's wife. 1 Corinthians 5.1. And pray tell, how did the Corinthian church handle this violation of Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8? Like many modern churches would handle it. Oh, that's the Old Testament. That doesn't apply to Christians. We are so merciful, Paul. We're such gospel-believing Christians that we don't listen to Leviticus 18. Come on, man. Do you even believe the gospel, Paul? Well, yeah, I preached it to you. I founded your church. I give my life for it. I was ordained directly by the mouth of Jesus. And I believe that Leviticus 18 is a standard for church discipline. And therefore, he says, out with the man. Remove the leaven from the midst of you. I haven't even seen the man and I've judged him already, he says. I don't need two or three witnesses. This guy's openly living with his father's wife. I note then this doctrine that marriage creates relationships as strong as nature. Marriage creates relationships as strong as nature or the tie of consanguinity. This is the mother-son relationship. Do you remember last week or two weeks ago now? We looked at Exodus 21. We saw the father-in-law and the daughter-in-law relationship. He was to treat her like his daughter. You remember that? Because he had betrothed this woman to his son, he was to treat her like a daughter. He wasn't to send her out like the male slaves. Remember that. So this creates a tie that God says is just like natural ties when you have this marital relation that is established with the man's father taking a wife. Now our confession of faith, chapter 24 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, paragraph 4 says this, Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man. Now, sadly, the Presbyterian churches have not heeded this, but this is the scripture teaching. This is what Paul bases his discipline on in 1 Corinthians 5. And when we're taught that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness, I'm pretty sure Paul included Leviticus 18 in that. Because is it inspired by God? Is it God's word? Yes. 
so we live according to it. There's nothing uniquely Jewish about this. In fact, God says, look at those nations who don't have the Bible, who don't have my covenant, who aren't under the law of Moses. They are being judged because they won't listen to their conscience. And you better follow me, he says, or I'll judge you just like they are being judged. Okay, so we cannot make these marriages lawful by any law of man. Exhortation from this then, let us not scoff at such scripture truth, but let us form our lives and our thinking upon these truths. All right, so the father's wife, and then again, it's called thy father's nakedness, because even though she is your stepmother, she is united as one flesh with your father, and therefore off the menu. Verse 9, it refers there to of thy father or daughter of thy mother. This is a half-sister, we would call this. Partial sharing of blood, similar to verse 11, as we'll see, but born at home or born abroad. Now, this idea of being born at home or born abroad could carry the idea of a person who's not legitimately begotten or a bastard child, in other words. It doesn't matter because there's still some relation you have of blood and therefore you cannot do this. It is wicked and lawless to uncover them. Partial consanguinity then is off the menu. Then notice verse 10. The nakedness of thy son's daughter or thy daughter's daughter. This is another relationship. This is what we call the grandchild no uncovering the grandchild in this case. Then notice verse 11, thy father's wife's daughter. This is a stepsister. Partial affinity, partial consanguinity perhaps, but not permitted by God. Then notice thy father's sister in verse 12, or thy mother's sister in verse 13. This is a relationship again of consanguinity forbidden by God. Verse 14, thy father's brother. Okay, so this is your aunt married to your father's brother and therefore forbidden. Then verse 15, thy daughter-in-law, she is thy son's wife. Now this is 100% affinity. There is no blood relation whatsoever. Your son went and got married to some woman and he says, don't do it. Don't think about it. Don't make eyes at her. Do, don't, don't do anything leading up to this, but especially the act itself. Do not do it. Matthew Poole notes on this passage, we learn from hence that the same degrees are forbidden in consanguinity or kindred by blood and affinity or kindred by marriage. Do you see that? Because she is your son's wife, it's like she's your daughter. It created that relationship of affinity where you could not with your own daughter and therefore not with your daughter-in-law. So they are parallels, in other words. Then note verse 16. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife. It is thy brother's nakedness. Now, you remember in the law, Deuteronomy chapter, what is it, 25, I think, where God said, you have to go into the widow of your brother. 
only unique to Israel. The general rule is this. Don't touch, don't look at your brother's wife. But for Israel, he said, I have an exception. Raise up seed. If she doesn't have any children, you have to go in and marry her and raise up seed to your deceased brother. That's the only exception that I'm aware of that God ever made to this rule. The basic rule is she's your sister-in-law, so she's like your sister. You stay off, stay away, don't think about it, don't uncover her. Sister-in-law is 100% affinity, but Deuteronomy 25.5 makes an exception because God is the sovereign lawgiver. If he wants Israel to have a leveret marriage where you marry your, the widow of your brother, then he can do that. He can say that and he can require it as a duty that men owe, but otherwise off the table, off consideration. Thy brother's wife. Then notice verse 17. Now I want you to notice something um, about verse 17 here. It says, a woman and her daughter. Okay, so you have no blood relation again to the daughter, do you? But you have an affinity relationship to the mother. And therefore that creates, now you're her father, affinity-wise. You're her stepdad, we would call that. And God says, no, off the table, off consideration. And then he goes on and gets even deeper into this. A woman and her daughter, neither shalt thou take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. Okay, so he's now like it's your own grandchild, so to speak. You assimilate them by the degree of affinity, the same degree as blood is now by relation of marriage. That's what this is illustrating. Then he says, it is wickedness. Don't excuse yourself and say, well, I'm not blood relation with her, so can't I? Come on. God says, shut up. This is wicked. Don't do this. Don't justify it and say, well, it's okay. Can't you just make an exception? You know, like the Pope did, where they could go within the degrees of consanguinity. Come on, or the degrees of affinity. Can't we just make an exception? No, it's wickedness, he says. Don't do it. All her relations become your relations by marriage. You become one flesh with the woman, and therefore all of these relations that are by blood, are also forbidden by marriage. Now note verse 18. If you look carefully, you have the preface in verse 6, none of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him. Then verses 7 through 17 illustrates, well, what do you mean by kin, Lord? Who are my kin? Is it just those by blood and flesh? No, it's also those by marriage. So he's gone through and he's illustrated. You'll see verse 7, the nakedness of so-and-so, eight, the nakedness, nine, the nakedness, 10, the nakedness, 11, the same. Then note verse 12, he transitions, thou shalt not uncover. Verse 13, thou shalt not uncover. Verse 14, thou shalt not uncover. Verse 15, thou shalt not uncover. Verse 16, thou shalt not uncover. Verse 17, thou shalt not uncover. Now notice verse 18, what's different? Does he say thou shalt not uncover? Does he say the nakedness of so-and-so? No. He's done illustrating what are the laws of blood and what are the laws of marriage and how they parallel each other. Now he's doing something different. Notice verse 18. Neither shalt thou take a wife to her sister. Verse 10. Also thou shalt not approach unto a woman 
and uncover her nakedness as long as she's set apart. Verse 20, carnally with thy neighbor's wife. Verse 21, passing through to your seed to Molech. 22, lie with mankind. Sodomy, it's an abomination. 23, bestiality. 24, defile not yourselves. So he's gone from this general explanation of the degrees of relation now to some other perversities that happen in family life. With that in mind, verse 18. Neither shalt thou take a wife to her sister to vex her, to uncover her nakedness beside the other in her lifetime. Now this is debated among scholars. And the reason I pointed out the context is to help you see I don't believe verse 18 refers to consanguinity or to affinity any longer. He's done with that. He's transitioned with the Hebrew word val. It's a single letter. It's where God starts a new section. Often he'll use that letter val, and he'll, he'll say this, this, this. Now, and this over here, and then he'll talk about it. And this over here, and he'll talk about it. So he'll transition. I believe that was the transition neither at the beginning at verse 18 there, marking a transition, opening a new topic or a new section. Now, why am I saying this? Well, it has to do with this. You're not to take a wife to her sister, he says. Now, this word sister can mean a literal sister. Here's your wife. Here's your sister-in-law. You can't take her. Now, if we look at this carefully, he's already forbidden that, hasn't he? So what does this mean? My opinion is, that what he's saying here is sister in the sense the Bible occasionally uses it of another of the same kind. Don't take a wife and then get a second. Because what happens when you multiply wives? You vex the first wife. God said the two shall become one. And what happens in the instance of polygamy? Does life become better for the first wife? No. You are not capable of being a double man. You might be double-minded, but you can't be twice the man. You cannot be two men. You can only be one. And you will vex the woman. Now let me ask you a question. Every time that we have a history of polygamy in the Bible, does it end with roses and kittens and you know, beautiful chocolate flowers and everybody's happy and the man is honored and set in the place of authority? No. You know what Jacob was reduced to? He got bargained for for some mandrakes. Hey, uh, my son brought me these mandrakes. I want to rent my husband for the night. Here, you wife, take this. Take these goods, and I'll, I'll, I'll rent him from you so I can get a kid from him. You know, Issachar is named after that. Issachar means the higher you pay for someone. The higher you pay for a prostitute. Jacob becomes a whore in his own house by having multiple wives. Does that honor his authority? No. Completely and totally backwards, upside down and contrary and vexatious. So I believe that there is good reason to suppose that this is not talking about consanguinity. This is talking about the general rules of marriage. No polygamy. No wife and the other or her sister. No other woman introduced into the marriage because it is vexatious, it is contrary to the order of nature, it is not what God ordained in the beginning, and if God winked at it in Israel, it was only because of the hardness of their hearts. And then notice verse 19, 
Do not approach to her that is put apart for her uncleanness. This is a natural prohibition, the woman's monthly cycle. You can read about this in Ezekiel 18, verse 6, where God lines this up in the context of violating the first commandment and having another God and violating the seventh commandment and committing adultery. Also, Ezekiel 22.10 lines this up with incest. So it's not like it's just some ceremony that God said, oh, because you're in the Old Testament and you're Jews, I want you to observe this thing. No, he lines it up with basic fundamental moral laws. And then notice verse 20, you shall not do this with your neighbor's wife. This is the primary reference of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Then verse 21, thy seed shall not pass through the fire to Molech. What about the fruit of your marriage? Can't you have such a zeal for God that you'll offer your kids up to your God? No, he says. I don't want your zeal. I don't want your good intentions. I want your obedience. I want you to believe what I promise and obey what I command. Not make up your own stuff in your blind zeal. Then verse 22. Mankind as with womankind. This is sodomy. The confusion of nature against nature. And I might add, this is the result of idolatry. You have your blind zeal for your God and you worship according to your own imagination. Paul says, God visits that with what? turning you over to a reprobate mind to do those things that are not convenient, women with women working what is unseemly, and the men being given over. That's what happens when you worship creatures, is God makes you inhuman like a beast. In any case, then verse 23 refers to beasts themselves and behaving as if they were humans. It is confusion, he says. This Hebrew word means to violate the order of nature created by God himself. And then note, let's read verse 24. Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, for in all these the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. Oh, those poor Canaanites. Those menial Hebrews come in out of Egypt. Kick them out of their lands. Oh, they were victims, were they? No. God said, these nations did all of these things. Let that sink in. Every last one he's just talked about. Whether it was blood relations, whether it was marital relations, whether it was sodomy, bestiality, the woman set apart, adultery, they did it all. Why? Because they were idolaters. Because they worshipped graven images. Because they worshipped the work of their own hands. And therefore God gave them over and punished them with a reprobate mind to do those things that are not fitting. That's why they were defiled. Sin upon sin upon sin upon generation upon generation until God says, I'm sick of you. And guess who else said that? The land said, I'm going to vomit you out. You make me sick when you step on the soil. Get off of here. That's what the land said. Threw them up. Cast them out. Sick of their presence. Verse 25. And the land is defiled. Therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it. 
and the, inha- the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Unpleasant, isn't it? But you just want that thing out, don't you? And once you get it out, you feel a lot better, don't you? That's what happens when you throw up. Usually, sometimes it goes on, but usually, ah, oh, this hurt in my stomach, and then you get it out. Oh, whew, got some relief. That's what the land said. Sick of you people. Get off of me. Get out of here. I don't want you here. Why? Because you worship idols and you practice these wicked and godless things and I'm sick of you and you got to go. Therefore, I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it. You want to violate the order of nature, nature will fight against you. It will reject the inhabitants. It will be cursed for the sake of the lawless deeds of them that dwell upon it. But you say, I thought these were just for the Jews. Were they? Didn't God hold these heathen nations to these very standards? Consanguinity, affinity, adultery, sodomy, bestiality. None of these things, God says, are unique to you people. No, he's applying this standard to the Canaanites who have no Bible, who have no Moses, who worship idols. And he says, that's why I'm punishing them because they didn't obey my law written on their heart from the very creation of the world. But if that wasn't enough, notice verse 26. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither, listen, any of your own nation, nor who else? Any stranger that sojourneth among you. You know what that means? This is a moral law. This is a chapter filled with laws that apply to Jews and to Gentiles. Everyone created in the image of God must observe these laws. So if a pastor comes along and says, as the Corinthian church said, that doesn't apply to me. (sighs) Washed in the blood, forgiven by grace. By grace you're saved through faith. You told us that, Paul. Not by works, lest any man should boast. And Paul says, cast him out. Don't be puffed up in your pride. Don't think you have a corner on grace and mercy. The same God who sent his son also inspired Leviticus 18. Cast him out. He's not living in good works. I know then this doctrine. An abomination that is tolerated brings civil guilt. An abomination that is tolerated, brings civil guilt. Nations don't have souls like humans do. Nations are collections of people with political processes that they engage in for good reasons, but they don't have souls. Don't believe the pagans. Don't believe the heathens and the Hegelians. Oh, the spirit of America. There is no spirit of America. There are spirits that make up America, certainly, yes. But when a nation tolerates evil especially these abominations of idolatry and of these sexual perversions, guess what God says? The whole nation is now guilty. You might have an exception over here. You might have a lot in Sodom who doesn't engage in these practices, who hates them and is vexed in his righteous soul, but that's not going to spare Sodom, is it? No, Sodom's going to burn straight down into hell. Drop into hell. The fire of hell comes down on them and pushes them down to everlasting perdition, Peter says. They're not spared. 
National sins bring national judgments. If we tolerate these evils, the whole body becomes guilty and the nation brings judgment upon itself. On the other hand, as we looked at Tuesday night, righteousness exalteth a nation. It lifts it up out of the pit of degradation, idolatry, poverty, crime, lawlessness. Righteousness lifts up that nation to safety. God exalts it and makes it the head and not the tail, not to be wagged by the others. Do you know where our nation is going? Do you know our nation used to be the head? What is it now? Oh, I tell you, you got to send your kids to die for my gay country. Come on. Come on, comrades, come over to Ukraine. Give me the billions and trillions of dollars. Wag you like a tail. You Americans are a joke. We Americans are a joke. We have some pervert in the Eastern Bloc countries telling us to send him money and we're doing it? Yeah, we are a laughingstock. Why is that? Because we said, God, we think you ought to be separate from our state. You ought to stay out of our national affairs. We don't want the church meddling in our business. We don't want a Sabbath imposed on us, as your ancestors did. You know, the blue laws got struck down in Virginia in 1988 by six unelected judges sitting up there in their little judge seats. Hey, that's not constitutional. That's not fair. Because this group gets to stay open and this one doesn't. So let's get rid of the Sabbath. You know how long we had the Sabbath? Since Englishmen were here. As soon as the Englishmen got here, they had a Sabbath and they established it by law. And their charter from King James said, blue is the color of the paper for the Sabbath law. That's why they're called blue laws. It was published in blue. You will keep the Lord's day holy. No civil matters will be handled. No one can engage in business. You know where that goes back to? Well, it goes back to the fourth century when Constantine finally converted to the faith. And he said, we have to keep the Christian Sabbath. We have to keep the Lord's Day. Now, the Christians were doing it before then, but the magistrate wasn't. The magistrate was hunting them down on the Lord's Day and killing them. And finally, they said, oh, that's right. We need to keep the Lord's Day holy to remember our Savior, Jesus Christ, who beginning shone the light on the first day of the week and shone the light of his resurrection on the first day of the week and sent forth his spirit on the day of Pentecost on the first day of the week. We need to celebrate this. We need to honor this day. And now what happened? Forget about it, Lord. We don't need your day. We don't need your church. We don't need your word. And we don't need your blessing. And that's what we have right now. We have the curse of Almighty God. National sins bring national judgments. An exhortation from this, let us be a holy people. Let us not tolerate the sins of our nation. Let us not approve of them or wink at them. But rather, let us work, let us pray, let us evangelize, let us live in such a way that in due time we may overturn this lawless mess and we may see a day yet again where a magistrate says, God, have mercy on your soul. Now go hang him. And he sends the pastor to come and bring the gospel to that man right before his death. That's what we had a nation that feared God, a righteous nation, and God did what? Lifted us up. And now we have a sinful nation, which he says is a reproach 
to any nation. They will be cast down. They will be put to shame. They will be made the tail and not the head. Let us work to undo this mess in governing ourselves, in governing our families, in governing our churches, and as God blesses, in governing the civil sphere once again. And thus far, the explanation of God's holy word. Let's pray.